0: This morning's Bible reading comes from the Gospel of Luke, continuing the series. wherein in Luke chapter 19, commencing at verse 11. <coughs> Excuse me. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear soon at once. He said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten miners. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first came and said, Sir, your miner has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied, because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter. Take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your miner has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your miner. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take what you did not put in and you reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you? that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his miner away for him and give it to the one who has ten miners. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has More will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Here ends our reading.
1: Thank you, Bruce. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. My name's David. Well, they had so much potential. That's a phrase that you hear again and again in sports, business or education. What we're saying uh, is that that's someone who hasn't achieved what we thought was possible or what we expected from them. So, you know, that can apply to a highly rated sporting junior or a, um, a brilliant but lazy student or even a sharp preacher or minister with no people skills. It's the sad story of what might have been. And I just want to put it to you this morning that maybe... You're here today as a Christian and you feel like your story has been one of wasted potential, the story of what might have been. Maybe you're a ministry leader, a Bible study leader, or something like that. Yet your life has been filled with spiritual inconsistency. You know, if Jesus returned today, you wouldn't be firing on all cylinders. When it comes to following Jesus, some of us have only done that half-heartedly for a long time. And others of us run hot and cold and hot and cold again and again. Wherever you're at today, if that describes you, I hope that Jesus' parable in Luke 19 is as timely and helpful today as the day he first told it. I think it is because it gives us a perspective on the future and gives our life and work meaning and significance because it it reminds us that history is going somewhere and it reminds us that we are going somewhere. Now, maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. Maybe there's no sense of the future for you in the way that I just described. Maybe there's nothing really big you're living for. I mean, we keep busy, right? Um, But the next big thing in your horizon is the next party or the next partner, the next movie, the next job. You know, um, you're familiar with the the idea of the the midlife crisis, you know, 50-year-old guys on Harley Davidson's. They're saying now that these crises, these existential crises happen every five years. They, at least they've got a name for the one that happens when you're 25, that's the quarter life crisis. What you used to do when you hit one of these existential crisis, crises where, you know, back in the day is you would search for meaning, search for God, you'd stare at the stars and meditate on your own cosmic smallness. But now when one of these moments hits, we don't have anything like that, we actually we look for an off-ramp and so instead of coming deeply for meaning. We leave our boyfriend or girlfriend, we go backpacking in Chile, or we join a Zumba class, and then we wonder why these little life tweaks don't kind of provide us with the deep meaning we're looking for. And so if you're not yet a Christian, I want to show you that you can have a life of meaning because to have a life of meaning is to live and take your place in a bigger story. I think Jesus' parable in Luke 19 provides you not with off-ramps but with a robust and redemptive story that you can truly live out of. And so that's where we're going. And so I hope that wherever you're at today, you're blessed as we take a journey because this is really the story of a king. And there are only two possible relationships with this king. You reject his rule and you be his enemy or you accept his rule and you do his will faithfully. So I've only really got three things to say this morning. Jesus is king, Jesus is coming back and a question, is Jesus your king? So let's dive in. We're going to start in verse 11 of the parable. Now in terms of what's happening in this parable, it's actually not too difficult to unlock the meaning because Luke's left the keys in the door for us in verse 11. Because he was near Jerusalem, the people thought that the kingdom was going to appear at once. Now, Luke's record of this journey starts in, in chapter 9. As the time came for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. The whole time his disciples were saying, Master, Master, it's kind of getting a bit hot near Jerusalem. Are you sure we shouldn't be going back the other way? And he's saying, no, this is where we're going. A lot of people think that Jesus' death was a bit of a, you know, things kind of went wrong on that Passover weekend and it all got a bit out of control. It's not exactly how it's meant to go down but for Jesus it was plan A all the way as he set his face resolutely to Jerusalem. And Jesus had spoken repeatedly about what was going to happen when he got there but his listeners hadn't been able or they didn't want to kind of understand. And so in Luke 18 Jesus takes the 12 aside. He says, "'We're going to Jerusalem and everything that is written "'by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled.' He'll be handed over to the Gentiles. They'll mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him and kill him. And on the third day, he'll rise again. And Luke says, The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them and they did not know what he was talking about. It's it's really clear actually from the Gospel that the people and the disciples in particular thought that what was going to happen on this journey to Jerusalem was going to be some kind of massive revolution with Jesus enthroned as king, his disciples would get kind of appointed to higher places, offices, um, and that they'd boot out the Romans back across the Mediterranean, back where they belong. That's the kingdom they wanted. When do they want it? Now. The reality is really different though. And so on the journey they've reached Jericho, It's just a couple of kilometres from their destination and Jesus has another go at attempting to correct their mistaken beliefs about this kingdom. So he tells his story. In the story, a nobleman goes to a distant country to have himself appointed king. 13. So he calls ten of his servants and gave them ten miners. A miner's about three months' wages um, of a a sort of a labourer. So you look at 10 or 15 grand, something like that. But his servants hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Now, all this goes down in Jericho. Now, interestingly, just a few years before, something very similar happened in Jericho. There was a man named Archelaus. And he was the son of Herod the Great, who was king. And in his will, he left kind of Jerusalem and Judea and all those places to his sons. So his son Herod Antipas had Galilee and Philip had east of the Jordan and Archelaus got Judea and Samaria. Now, what, um, what Rome used to do, and they ruled all of Israel and all of Syria, they would appoint the locals to kind of rule the small territories. And often for those locals, obviously their position was insecure and it depended on favours from the emperor. So you'd go to Rome, you'd make occasion, you'd get support. Archelaus has done that. But on the way, the Jews follow closely behind him, protesting. And they go to the emperor as well saying, we don't want this man to be our king. We don't want this man to be our king. Because in his case, when he succeeded to the throne, he massacred 3,000 of his countrymen on the first Passover, that he was in charge. When Jesus tells his story, he's also the nobleman going to a far country to be appointed king. He's also a man of noble birth, but when he gets to Jerusalem, they don't say, Long live the king! They say, Crucify him! Crucify him! But after three days he's raised to life and a short time later he's with his disciples, he's taken up to heaven. That's his departure, that's him going to a distant country, appointed king. But he's promised to return. When Jesus ascended, the watching disciples were told, this same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back the same way you've seen him go into heaven. And in the story the nobleman promises to return too. Put this money to work, he says until I come back. The key is coming back. This actually is Jesus' answer to our feelings of purposelessness because this is the heart of the Bible's work ethic, actually. What Jesus is doing, in other words, is offering these servants, people like us, but people like his disciples, an opportunity to play a part in serving the kingdom before its final fulfilment. And it's not grounded in moral duty. It's grounded in future hope. See how the reward is described. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, he says to the servant, who's minor, return ten miners, you'll take charge of ten cities. Now, we don't know heaps about life in heaven, but we do know it's going to be a life of responsible active, fulfilled kind of living. And the king at his glorious return will will reward his servants with more responsibility and opportunity to serve him in still greater ways. Now, just before I go on, this is a very important part of the parable because we often make two mistakes about going to heaven. The first is to think we can get there by good works. The second is to think that we can get there without good works. The Bible actually says we can't earn our salvation. We're dead in our sins. When my dad woke up on a hospital stretcher after having a heart attack, he didn't sit bolt upright and say, oh, I'm alive today because of my lifetime of careful living and my avoidance of cheese sandwiches. No, he looked to the ones that had saved him, the doctors and the nurses who performed heart surgery on him. Jesus saves us. Our good works do not save us. He's very clear about that. We cannot earn God's grace. Forgiveness is the gift that he gives us out of all proportion to any merit that we can claim. But on the other hand, the Bible actually says our actions are relevant to our eternal destiny. We can't earn God's grace, but we have to show evidence of it. We're justified by Jesus justified by Jesus but when we're justified by Jesus we show evidence of that when you get to heaven you don't get to say I'm here let me in when the book of life's open there has to be evidence of our commitment our faith God's spirit at work in our lives I think one of the purposes of this parable is to challenge us to see that it's not going to be on the last good enough on the last day just to kind of turn up I was reading about a Russian church, actually a Russian seminary, a training college for Russian pastors. And uh, and they said, when they um, do their admittal process, they only have one question for you depending on when, when your baptism was. That is, if you were baptised in the Soviet era during atheist, communist Russia, it's cool, you're in. You've proved your faithfulness. If, if you were a Christian and you stood up under that test, we, we know your heart, roughly. But if you were... Baptized after the Federation. Well, we've got some more questions to ask you. There's some more things that we want to to discern. I'll tell you all this because up till now, as you read a parable like this, you might get it confused with the parable that Matthew tells in Matthew 25, the parable of the talents. In that parable, uh, different servants get um, different kind of amounts of money. It, 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 Luke's take is completely different. Matthew's parable is about people giving different abilities and then the people with lesser abilities not doing anything with it. This parable says we've all been given the same amount, the same gift. And if there's a difference in results, it's not due to the differing gift, it's due to the differing levels of obedience, of faithfulness. So sometimes I... I wonder, am I am I doing a good job as a Christian? Am I am I making a difference? It's very easy to um, to look. You know, even as a even as a small group leader at the church, um, I, I look at some small groups that have grown over the year. Mine shrunk. We've kind of limped into Christmas. Um, you know, one couple's had a baby. Another couple's another guy's doing his PhD, and we're kind of just battling away. And I, I look at other groups, and sometimes I think. Have I done enough? Has this been good enough? Has this been a good year? Will this stand up under the test? But Jesus is saying, however small it may seem, our efforts will not be in vain. However small it may seem, our efforts will not be in vain. He said to the servant, because you have been faithful in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians, My dear brothers and sisters, stand firm, let nothing move you, Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that labour in the Lord is not in vain. And so if that's you, if, if, if as, a, as a Christian, maybe you are working hard, you're trying to be faithful, but you always have those nagging questions. Your labour for the Lord is not in vain. Be encouraged. I just want to make three observations while we're here. The first is, while we do this ministry, while we are faithful for Jesus, we have to do business with the gospel in a hostile environment. Did you notice that as we as we read through the story? The servants that have used the master's minor in the face of citizens who say, we do not want this man to be our king. Now in the parable that's a reference to the Jewish nation who say to Pilate, we have no king but Caesar. And nothing's changed for us. So we've got a government who, in the name of tolerance and equality, uh, is destroying any vestige of kind of Christian living in public life. And There are crowds of people today, just, just as always, friends, neighbours, families, some who admire Jesus, none of whom want him to be their king. We have to do our business for the gospel in a hostile environment. That's what it's going to be like to be servants of Jesus who are faithful. Second observation. The power of the gospel is in the message itself. It's not in the skill of the messenger. The servants don't say, Master, my great business skill has multiplied your minor. I've been an amazing gospel entrepreneur. Rather they say, Your minor has made ten minors more. Your minor, Master, has made five minors. The power's in the minors not the servants. The power of the gospel is not the power of slick salesmanship, but rather God's power working through his word. So if you are battling away in that small, small group or that small ministry with one eye on what's happening elsewhere, thinking, oh, gee, this just doesn't doesn't stack up. If you're being faithful with the gospel, putting it to use, pointing people to Jesus, then that gospel will work. The power of the gospel is not the power of, of us. Rather, God's power working through his word, not the skill of the messenger. Paul says, when he talks about the governing purpose of his life, he says this, I do all things for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Every believer should be living for the same purpose. I do all things for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Third observation. Third observation. When the master returns, we will all be called to give an account of our business. Now, um, I regularly have performance reviews. Actually, you might not have thought this happens at church. By Bruce, he calls me in. We sit across a table from each other. He slides a piece of paper towards me. That's pretty normal in the in the world of paid employment. In other jobs I've had, I've even had had to pass a, a three month evaluation in order to be taken off probation. So, if I fail the review, they let me go. If I pass the review, I get my full benefits package. And what's happening in the parable is not unlike an employee evaluation. So the first two servants, obviously, they pass with flying colours. They're given a raise. They're given more responsibilities. Do you see how it works? But what about the other servant? Let's, um, let's just tune in and see how his review goes. Verse 20. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here's your minor. I've kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you're a hard man. Take out what you did not put in and you reap what you did not sow. So, um, it's not starting off real great, the way he's talking to his boss. His master replied, I'll judge you by your own words, you wicked servants. You knew, did you, that I'm a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I come back I could have collected it with interest? I'm such a hard man. You could have at least done something with the money if you, if you were so scared of me. You at least listen to me. This is the point. That servant didn't even listen to the master. That servant's in no relationship with the master. This servant is Faithless. Faithless. There's been a lot of debate about what that means, but the context suggests that Jesus is saying we need to serve God using what he's given us constructively, with enterprise, with energy. The gospel's the power, but we're looking for opportunities, right, to put it to work. Sometimes um, I come to church, I sing one of the great songs that we sing here. um, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. You know it? You sing it too, probably. What does that mean for us? Demands my soul, my life, my all. Because there's plenty of us who attend church and we enjoy the company of Christian friends, but when when it comes to our outside witness, our testimony about Jesus is mute. There's nothing happening. Luke's been saying all through his gospel: only people who are willing to throw away their lives for the sake of the kingdom will discover real life, the deep joys of being in relationship with Jesus, of living in faithfulness with Jesus. This is the biggest story. If we hang on to our life, hoarding what God's given to us, we will lose it. The paradox is, if we want to receive life, we have to be willing to let it go. And the irony of this faithless servant, this one who, is, who doesn't know the Master, is that in trying to avoid taking risks, he was taking the biggest gamble of all. He doesn't know the king. He thinks he's harsh. He's anything but harsh. See how gracious he's been to the servants. Your labour for the Lord's not in vain. Thank you for being faithful with a little. You'll be rewarded with much more. Ten cities, five cities, This is a guy who's basically indifferent about the master. He's unconcerned about the king's purpose, about the king's kingdom. I, I, I wonder actually if, if part of this was a comment on these people that thought that the kingdom was just around the corner as Jesus got to Jerusalem thinking, yeah, we don't have to put in, in a second, um, Jesus will take care of everything. He'll be king and it'll be easy being his servant because he'll do all the work." I wonder if we can be a bit like that, thinking he'll come back soon, and when he comes back he'll sort out sin and he'll call the people to himself that he wants to and he'll do it, he'll do it, he'll do it. And so we don't do anything. And what we're real about ourselves is we're actually unconcerned about him and his purposes and his kingdom. And then there are people who are hard on God. How can you how how can you let things happen in nature God? How can people he sent to hell. And actually, I think hard thoughts of God are a common mark of people who don't know him because if you misrepresent him, if you don't bother getting to know him, then it's easy. You've got your excuse for not loving and serving him as king. And he said to those standing by, Take his minor away from him and give it to the one who has ten. So he's already got ten. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. You see who's your king? Because those enemies of mine who do not want me to be king over them, look what happens to them. Bring them here and kill them in front of me. That's a hard word. Look back at verse 14. His subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. This is what I want you to notice. His subjects hated him. Listen to this. Everybody belongs in his kingdom. You may hate Jesus, but he owns you. He's sovereign over you. You may be an atheist, you may be a Wiccan, you may be a Buddhist, but he owns you. What have we just been singing together this morning? centre of the universe. Everything belongs to you, Jesus. You live in his country because he made the world. It's his and he made you. By creation he owns you. See, I think this is a message people don't understand. I think they think, if I reject Jesus, that's cool because then he'll have nothing left to do with me, nothing more. Anything, there's nothing further from the truth. If you reject Jesus, Jesus has everything to do with you. If you ignore Jesus, Jesus has everything to do with you. If you accept Jesus, Jesus has everything to do with you. We're in his world. This is his country over which he is sovereign. He has full authority. We're told in Philippians that at the name of Jesus, when he returns, every knee will bow, every knee and every tongue confess on that day that Jesus Christ is Lord and it will be to the glory of God the Father because God the Father raised him from the dead the day that he died on the cross for you and for me, the day that he paid... The penalty and the punishment for our sins, God raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand, appointed him king. And by the way, there's nothing in this story that indicates that they had any reason to hate the nobleman. This is where the story departs from history just a little bit. They hated Jesus for no reason. In John 15 it says, they hated me without a cause. And when it's Archelaus, That's reasonable. He slaughters 3,000 Jews. When it's Jesus, that's blasphemy. It still is for the people who reject Jesus. Just before Jesus went to heaven, he gave his disciples the gift of the Holy Spirit and he gave 3,000 people life. This is a different sort of king than Archelaus. They hated him without a cause, without a reason. We don't want this one to reign over us, they say. In the Greek, it's derogatory. This one doesn't even deserve a title. We don't want this one to reign over us. Well, they didn't succeed in keeping Archelaus off the throne, and they they won't succeed in keeping Jesus off the throne either. He'll be back. He's been coronated. He's been crowned. He'll come back as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and all the kingdoms will become his kingdom. And he'll rule the world and every knee will bow and nothing will keep him from his glorious throne. And so those who hate the gospel and who hate Jesus and reject Jesus, they'll face him as their king. And on the day that they bow their knee to him, they won't bow to him as their master, he'll be as their judge and their executioner. Chilling words. And in manly 2013, I think we all kind of think it would have been preferable for Jesus to have left them unspoken but the fact is God's kingdom has no room for rebels. I mean it was rebellion against God that caused, ruined the world in the first place. You know what the foundation of this kingdom is going to be? It's going to be the prayer that Jesus taught us himself. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And if you can't pray that and silently add in my life as well, then you've already excluded yourself from this kingdom. Now, I know at this point Christians can get worried. I've heard some people who have been walking with the Lord a long time say, I hope I'll be good enough. I'm not sure i get in. If that's you, let me reassure you. Because although the King does demand our faithfulness and one day he will call us to give an account of our lives, let's not lose sight that the King we serve is full of amazing grace, generous grace. And maybe this is the reason why Jesus told the parable in response to the people who thought the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. For in one sense, Jesus did bring in the kingdom when he went to Jerusalem. But it wasn't a kingdom like Herod, built on power and violence, but based on generous, unbounded love as Jesus went to the cross to be punished for us as our substitute. A kingdom where when we respond and own that and put our faith in that, there's salvation and there's healing and there's peace and there's joy and there's the promise of our God and our King coming back and those words, Well done, my good servant. Because if you don't understand what Jesus' kingdom is like, then you will think it's a hard word. But if you do, you'll see that it's no great demand to obey and serve him when you're in a relationship. And so the question to finish is, is Jesus king over your life? There's different sort of kings. You can have a ceremonial king that has nothing much to do with you. You can have a hard and stern king that you obey out of a sense of duty or you can have a loving king. King who saved and rescued you, and in whose service you find perfect freedom? In the days before modern harbors, a ship had to wait for the flood tide before it could make it into port. And there was a Latin word for that it was "ob portu," um, that just meant literally "off port." So the English word is opportunity. Opportunity. And Shakespeare, in one of his famous passages, picks up on this idea. This is from Julius Caesar, Act 4. There is a tide in the affairs of men, which, taken at the flood, leads on to fortune. Omitted, all the voyage of their life is bound in shallows and miseries. On such a full sea are we now afloat and we must take the current when it serves or lose our ventures. Could this be why Jesus has told the parable to us today? Because here is an opportunity for the enemies of the king to come to their senses. It says in the Bible, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance. It's an opportunity for the servants, to keep being faithful, to to keep working for the kingdom and when the king returns, may we hear from his lips, well done, my good servant. And it's a time of waiting and longing for the return of the king. And even though it's delayed, it is certain he who testifies to these things says, as the Bible comes to a close, the end of Revelation, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come King Jesus, come. Amen.